be bound by a lot of notes that you think you're going to refer to because what you really need to do is be in the moment and convey your best understanding of events. Is it ever okay to admit that you don't know something? I think that it is not only okay, it's advisable to say when you don't know. For those just waking up, it has been an extraordinary night and morning. Here's what we know right now. What the community thought was going to be bad news again has turned into a surprising move. Hopefully, if I'm doing my job the right way, I'm writing you a novel. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep, co-host of NPR's Morning Edition. I've been a radio journalist, allegedly, for more than 25 years, and today I'm going to give you a master class. Am I really qualified to give a master class? Well, if I am, I'm going to give you a master class on going live. Hello, and welcome to the master class. I'm Louisa Lim, and I teach journalism at the University of Melbourne. Each week, we have a master of audio journalism talking through one aspect of the craft. This week, we're talking Going Live with Steve Inskeep, who hosts Morning Edition, a live morning show on NPR. So for many journalists just starting out, the thought of going live is one of the scariest things that you can possibly do. Cast your mind back to the beginning of your career. How did you get good at it? It can be terrifying. It took me a few years to realize how tense I'd been at the beginning. At the beginning, like, your voice constricts and your shoulders go up a little bit, and you realize you need to consciously relax. You are terrified you're going to make a mistake. You're terrified you're going to go too long. You're going to talk too fast or too slow or forget what you're doing. I remember having conversations with television journalists for ABC News, very gracious man. We covered a presidential campaign together, and he was talking about the experience of going live on television. And Peter Jennings, the great anchor at that time, would never tell them in advance what question he was going to ask. And so the correspondent said, this is like staring into the abyss. Anything could happen. Anything could go wrong. And it is very difficult at the beginning. And you try to plan out elaborately what you're going to say. But you get better at it, I think, when you get to the moment when you can feel like you just don't care. And I want to be clear about what I mean. You're still a perfectionist. You're still trying to be a journalist. You're still trying to get the facts right. You're still trying to tell a great story. But somehow you have to do all those things in a relaxed way as if you barely care what you're doing and you're just talking. Because in the end, that's what you want to convey to people. I'm just talking. I'm just telling you everything I know. So how do you get to that point? I mean, you know, a lot of young journalists, they don't have a few years. You yeah. need to be good at everything immediately to get a job. It's true. I think a lot of it is time time spent behind a microphone or in front of a camera. And I think a lot of younger journalists have an advantage there because they've grown up with social media and they've been on camera or on microphone or whatever, just continuously. A lot of people are very comfortable. If you think about the students who survived a school shooting in Parkland, Florida in the United States and have become activists for gun control in the United States, it immediately became apparent that they were all media trained, even though they'd not had any media training. A, a fair number of them were ready to go live on television and make eloquent cases for themselves because they'd had a lot of practice. I started recording because I realized that if I died, I wanted to have a good story to tell and a story that would echo on and show people that there is a serious issue in this country that people need to face, take a long, hard look at, and realize blood is being spilled on the floors of American classrooms, and that is not acceptable. Since the time that I came out here, it has been six minutes and 20 seconds. The shooter has ceased shooting 
and will soon abandon his rifle, blend in with the students as they escape, and walk free for an hour before arrest. Fight for your lives before it's someone else's job. I had been a reporter for years and even hosted programs for several years before I finally got to that point that I'm describing where I could feel like I'm just talking. And it could be that I was doing all right before then. I mean, you know, I didn't get fired or anything before then. <laughs> but you get to a point where you're just better at it. And it really is just time. And maybe it's also having the confidence in yourself to believe that you can finish the sentence or that if you screw up the sentence, you'll correct it the way you and I are just talking now. And if you know that that's your goal, that you just need to be confident enough not to have rehearsed every word, not to worry if you screw up something that you're just going to keep going, that you're just talking. If you know that's the goal, it might help you even if it takes you a while to reach that goal. So the way that most people start out is by doing lots of two ways. That's when the host interviews the reporter about something. And yeah. in the beginning, it might not necessarily be be live. It might be pre-recorded. Yes. But I mean, you do those, a lot of them every day. As a host, what are you looking for in a great two way? Well, the key thing to me is to listen. And that seems obvious, but I think it's not because a lot of people <laughs> go through a lot of conversations and don't really listen. You know, you don't quite hear what the other person says. You're conveying what you're trying to say. Or if you're a journalist, even a, you know, a host, you might be reading a list of questions that you'd thought about in advance and you're not really hearing the answers or whether the questions weren't answered at all. And so I try to go in with a limited number of things that I'd like to know with really straightforward questions, because a straightforward question, even a very basic sounding question, can focus the conversation both for the guest and for the person listening. What's this about? And ask those simple, sharp, direct questions and then listen for whether they were kind of avoided or not really mm -hmm. answered or really answered, and then follow up appropriately. If you do that in a straightforward way, simple conversation can almost sound like a devastating grilling. I've often thought about the fact that a really simple question like, why did you do that, can sound like a devastating accusation if somebody has just done something very strange that people can't quite understand. And that's all you really need to ask. You don't need to display as an interviewer your erudition or talk a lot. Sometimes you may have to help explain things, but you pick your spots to do that. You're not trying to sound smart. You're trying to direct the conversation and make sure that it goes someplace that it ought to go. And for the reporter, if you're going into it... Oh, yes. You yeah. were asking about the report. That's a good follow-up. Well, great listening. <laughs> I wasn't really following your question. You're saying if you're the reporter and you're being questioned right. in a two-way. First, don't feel you have to write down everything you plan to say. Ideally, you shouldn't even go in with any notes. You know your topic. If you are in some breaking news situation and you don't fully know the topic, it's okay to go in with some notes. And like, who are the names of the individuals I might be referring to so they don't screw them up? Or what is the number of dead people in some tragedy that you're having to describe? It's okay to write down some facts. But don't feel you ought to script things out. And you should listen also. What is it that the host is asking for? And how can I convey that story and help this person tell the story? And... Also, just be aware if the host gets something wrong. You don't want to yell, wrong, because it's just not polite. There's a famous story, actually, about a, I may get this story a little wrong, 
about a television correspondent. Sam Donaldson, the great ABC correspondent, writes about this in a book. One of his colleagues who corrected, I think, Walter Cronkite live on the air in a television broadcast and didn't get on the air again for a long time after that. <laughs> so some people maybe you don't want to correct, like, rudely. But if the other person in the conversation gets a fact wrong, it can actually be really good if you politely correct that and you know, actually say it's not the Republicans who did that, it's the Democrats. And suddenly we've discovered something we kind of didn't know about the story. And it can be great for people learning. So you want to be alive to what's being asked and be responsive to what's being asked. And don't be bound by a lot of notes that you think you're going to refer to, because what you really need to do is be in the moment and convey your best understanding of events. So who, who does a really great two-way? Oh, my goodness. You're talking about asking the questions or answering the answering questions? Answering the questions. Answering the questions. Wow, there have been a bunch of them. I think Lauren Freyer, for example. This is an NPR correspondent who has been based in recent years in Spain, but she's been able to parachute virtually into Paris when there's been some of the recent tragic terrorist attacks and just spin out what she knows, what she's figuring out, and it's done it in a very wonderful and poetic way. It's been really great. It's an unseasonably warm day here. The sun is shining. You're starting to see Christmas decorations out around Paris. But this is a city in mourning. Flags are at half-staff. Soldiers have erected barricades out the, outside the cathedral in front of me. There are soldiers patrolling with machine guns. Tours of Notre Dame are canceled today. There's a big canceled sign over a billboard announcing a choral concert. The Eiffel Tower was closed. It went dark last night in an act of mourning. Disneyland Paris is closed through Tuesday. So you have a lot of families and tourists wandering around the city instead, taking snapshots of piles of flowers on the street, impromptu memorials for the victims of these attacks. I think about somebody like Rob Schmitz, who succeeded you as a NPR's, one of NPR's correspondents in China, who can just tell a story and be in the moment and uh, make remarks that play off of your remarks. Nobody wants to get hit with a North Korean missile, Rob Schmitz, so why does China care? Well, what the Chinese are worried about is Thad's radar system. It's a sophisticated radar that could be used to track China's own missile systems hundreds of miles away inside of China. So for China, that's a problem. It doesn't want the U.S. military to know where Chinese missiles are located because it would give the U.S. a major advantage in the event of a conflict with China. The Chinese are also concerned about Thad because they believe it wouldn't be very useful against a North Korean strike anyway because it doesn't have the capability to take out North Korea's short-range missiles and artillery that cannot reach high altitudes. So the Chinese are questioning the real reason for that. They're hinting that it will actually be used to track China's missile systems and help contain China. Oh, and there's always been debate about just how effective missile defenses are. So China's worried about information that might be gathered here. But what, what can China do? Well, China's first retaliatory strike has been economic. The THAAD system was deployed on a golf course in South Korea owned by the Lotte conglomerate. And when word got out, China's government shut down 23 of Lotte's 115 stores in China, saying mm. all of them were suddenly in violation of fire codes. Um, so today, we I'm heard still hung that... up on the idea of like trying to hit my seven iron, bend it around this missile that's sitting there on the golf course, like a new obstacle. Go on, Rob. Go on. Go on. And so today there is some more news. Authorities here in Shanghai have shut down a chocolate factory. That's a joint venture between Lotte and Hershey, the first American company that's gotten pulled into this. Uh, Chinese travel agencies have stopped selling tickets to South Korea. There's been calls to boycott South Korean products and, and even K-pop music. So, you know, some of this sounds a little silly, but China is South Korea's largest trading partner, and this threatens to do some damage. I could go on for a while. There are people with different styles. 
Alphebia Quist Arcton in West Africa is a great storyteller with a wonderful, rich voice. And you could almost, with Ophebia, just say, Ophebia, go. And she would tell the whole story. Like, you almost don't need to ask her questions because she's such a great storyteller. And she's very colorful and very deep in the way that she talks about things. What we're being told is that early this morning, residents heard that Boko Haram was coming to their town again for the second time in just over a month. They scarpered. Everybody hid. But it wasn't at all what they had expected, another attack. It was apparently the captors of these 110 schoolgirls from Dabshi bringing them back. But as you said, bringing them back with a warning, saying, don't ever put your daughters in school again. So what the community thought was going to be bad news again has turned into a surprising move and the release of most of these girls, although with some exceptions, we're told, but about 100 girls, give or take, have been released. I could go on for half an hour. Those are just some colleagues that I have worked with who are great. Is it ever okay to admit that you don't know something? I remember quite early in my career, the first Chinese Mm -hmm. uh, man who went to space, Yang Liwei, I was live and his space capsule had just landed. And the anchor asked me, you know, how's he doing? And of course, I didn't know because they hadn't opened it. But I was kind of worried about saying I've actually got no idea because I thought I'd sound really uneducated. What did you say in the end? Well, you know, I did that thing that you do when you panic, when you just avoid the question, you ignore it. And afterwards, everyone said to me, why didn't you answer the question? And I felt really stupid, but I, you know you, how you sometimes panic. Wow. I think that it is not only okay, it's advisable to say when you don't know. I think that that is something that's really credible, that people appreciate and respect. And I find as an anchor or host or whatever I am, doing that all the time, and especially in breaking news situations, emphasizing what we don't know. You and I are recording this interview, and we just had another incident in France where somebody uh, appears to have committed a series of attacks in a small town in France. And the mayor of the town says the guy proclaimed allegiance to ISIS. But as you and I are talking, does that mayor know what he's talking about? What is the evidence that he has? And so I'm going back and forth with the correspondent and hopefully making really clear in that interview, this is a claim that we have. This is not solid information. We don't have everything. And I'm explicitly saying what is not known. I think the audience really respects that. And even if they didn't respect it, it's the right thing to do. Now, in your situation, I mean, my first instinct is, wow, dumb question. Um, (laughs) On the part of the anchor, I think the anchor ought to be thinking about with any guest, not just what do I want to know, but what are the questions that this person might be equipped to answer? And you, not being inside the capsule that hasn't opened yet, would not be very well equipped to know what's going on inside of it. But I guess you can't say to the person live on the radio, that's a dumb question. You could say, I don't know. We'll find out when the capsule opens and he speaks. Or there might be an opportunity there for you to break down that question into its little parts and figure out if you know anything that might give some insight. I don't know, but before the rocket took off, he said a couple of things that indicated his frame of mind. Or, I don't know, but uh, this is there's certainly going to be a lot of people who are proud of him. I mean, there are a lot of things you probably could say if you break it down to little pieces that, that at least shed some light on an unanswerable question. You're totally anticipating my next question, Uh which was, what do you do when you get stuck? Because it does happen when you're 
on the other end of a two-way and you're answering questions and you know maybe you're asked to provide some analysis that you don't feel equipped yeah. to do and in that case you're supposed to be authoritative and yet you're not quite there with all the facts how do you deal with that wow well that will happen i guess and i've been on either side of that conversation where i've asked a question and the other person clearly didn't have the equipment to go there or when i didn't have the equipment to go there and i was asked a question i think honesty is still good and slowing down the conversation might be a good thing again breaking down the problem into its little component parts and maybe you'll find out that uh, there is something you do know and uh, i would indicate this as well if you're the correspondent and i'm the anchor and we're going someplace that you're not comfortable you don't know what you're doing actually part of my job is to help get you out of that and hopefully you're on with an anchor or a host who will view their job that way Maybe I can prompt you. Maybe I can realize you ain't got that question, so I better move on to a different question. Maybe I can offer some information that I have that will get you thinking. There's a lot of different ways that I might help you out of that situation. And so hopefully you're collaborating. And as a journalist, I mean, you're talking journalist to journalist with the anchor. Hopefully you're, you guys are collaborating. Hopefully the anchor feels their job is to make you sound their best, which is how I feel my job is. If I'm doing my job right, I ought to be making the correspondents sound their best or helping them, I should say, to sound their best. And that might even work the other way. As I was saying before, if the anchor or the host is a little bit off, you can help them to get the story straight. So hopefully you'll have a partner or a life raft when that happens. So I was listening to some of your two ways from Yemen where you've just recently oh, been yeah. what really impressed me was your concision of the fact that you very quickly kind of got to the big picture that you know this is where Yemen is and this is why you ought to care about it and mm -hmm. this is why it's important for you but you managed to do it in a way that wasn't kind of preachy or didactic I mean how do you do that how do you insert the context without kind of going you know and one and two and three? Oh well thank you uh, I'm grateful that you you heard that and that you liked it because you underlined what our goal was there is this huge and we think hugely important story that in the United States at least has just been really undercovered I mean there's been great reporting but not enough. We haven't followed it, and it's because we're too busy and we've got our own problems. And, but it's an important story, and we just wanted people to understand and to know it and to feel it. Hey there, Dave. So how bad is this war? It is a humanitarian disaster. Saudis and other nations, backed by the United States, by the way, have taken one side in a civil war. It's been moving along for several years, largely beneath uh, our attention because of all this other news you've just been discussing. So right. to get a picture, we traveled into Yemen. We also came to meet refugees who have fled here to Djibouti. I'm beside the harbor of this East African nation. Just yesterday, we met a guy who put his wife and his three small kids on a small fishing boat in the middle of the night and floated over the Gulf of Aden. And when he got here, he met us and he said, we have no state. We have no government. He describes lawlessness, rebels walking around with Kalashnikov rifles, taxing the people, they don't provide security, and all the time planes from Saudi Arabia and the UAE are flying over and dropping bombs, some of which killed civilians that he knew. It's a disastrous situation. Well, it sounds like it. And, and can you explain to us why the United States is involved? I mean, this is, this is the U.S. backing Saudi Arabia, right? 
Yeah, this is the U.S. backing one of its longstanding allies. The Saudis say they want to end chaos on the border. They're battling a rebel group called the Houthis, which have fired into Saudi Arabia. The Saudis also allege the Houthis are backed by Iran. That's a big rivalry, you know, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, it becomes a complicated war. It's even more complicated because al-Qaeda has had bases in Yemen. The United States has an interest there. And the United States has been supportive largely of the Saudi efforts, despite the international criticism of the human cost. When I travel someplace, uh, you know, occasionally I get to travel someplace and talk to a president or a prime minister or you know, whatever, somebody important. But really, when you're getting out of the office and traveling, uh, the best people you will encounter are quote-unquote ordinary people, just people you even run into on the street that you might not have even known how to contact them before you went to the place and learning their stories. And if you have worked hard in advance to study and analyze the situation, you've internalized that. And when someone tells you something, when, for example, a refugee from Yemen begins telling you about their personal experience uh, of going three years without electricity, for example, or of having a bunch of their salary taken away by Yemen's rebels, or of having half their family killed by a Saudi bomb, all of which has happened to people, um, that becomes for you one data point in this much, much larger experience that you're trying to understand and illustrate. Then what is happening is uh, I'm not giving you a sermon. I'm not even giving you analysis Hopefully, if I'm doing my job the right way, I'm writing you a novel. I'm telling you a story of an individual, as you've done so brilliantly in your book and in, in many other things that you've, you've done over the years, where it's not the big analysis of the exact why and everything of Tiananmen Square. It's the experience of one guy who was a soldier who was mobilized to help repress the people. And what did that look like? And if you get into that individual story in the right frame of mind yourself, you can tell a huge story in an accessible way through that supposedly tiny life. What was your trickiest live moment? Oh, wow. Wow. I mean, there's so many I could think of. There's a big experience that I had when we first moved to this building where you and I are sitting. There was a bombing in Boston. The Boston Marathon was attacked a few years ago, 2013. And a few days later, the suspect was apparently uh, chased down in the middle of the night, except there was no real information, and we began going live. The program goes on the air at 5 o'clock Eastern time, and we ended up doing nine hours of nearly all live coverage, figuring it out as we went along, and interview by interview. there was a lot of misinformation A lot of time. misinformation, and we're being explicit all the way through about what we don't know and what we do know and trying to assemble what's going on and trying to get a sense of the kind of horror in the community because, as you may recall, like the whole city of Boston practically was locked down. Everybody was told to stay inside or whatever because they were chasing this guy around, ultimately found a suspect, I believe, hiding in a boat in somebody's backyard. On an astonishing Friday morning, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm David Green. Astonishing is right. For those just waking up, it has been an extraordinary night and morning in and around the city of Boston. Here's what we know right now. Overnight, authorities shot and killed one suspect in Monday's Boston Marathon bombings. There is a massive manhunt underway for a second suspect in Watertown, Massachusetts. Authorities are telling people all over the city of Boston and in some of the surrounding suburbs that there is a shelter-in-place order in effect 
suspect residents are supposed to stay in their homes and only answer the door if it is a clearly identified police officer. Now, these two suspects have since been identified as brothers from the Russian Republic of Chechnya. So the trail now leads overseas, although we must emphasize again and again, we do not yet know the motives of these two men. We do know a little bit about them. The younger of the two brothers has been identified as Jokar Sarnayev. He is 19 years old, still at large. His older brother died after a shootout with police early this morning in Watertown. He's been identified as being named Tamerlane Sarnayev. They were said to be in the United States for about a year before the Boston Marathon bombing. We don't know a lot more about them, but NPR's Tom Jelton is here to tell us what we do know. And Tom, I suppose the focus now is on the one who is still at large. Right. And I think that there have been few instances in recent American history where we have seen a manhunt so massive and so sweeping and so high stakes as this one that's underway in Boston right now. As David said, there is the entire city of Boston, the entire metropolitan area of Boston is now in a shelter-in-place situation. And the uh, police officers who briefed us just a short while ago said the purpose of keeping people sheltered in place was to make it easier for that manhunt to proceed. And while all of this was happening, there was a move taking place. NPR was in a different building than where you are, where, where you and I were sitting, and it was the last day for that headquarters. And nearly everybody else had moved out of the building. And as they'd moved out of the building, they'd left graffiti on the walls. It began to be like we were in a derelict building. And in fact, demolition crews were tearing down office space, and we were still broadcasting. And that morning was our last morning, and we were supposed to go off the air at noon, Eastern time. And the executive editor at that time, Madalika Sika, uh, walks in at some point during a break and says to David Green, my co-host and I, we're going past noon, we're going until 2 p.m. live, except this studio is still closing at noon. And (laughs) we need to move you to the new building (laughs) mid-live broadcast. And so what happened was at about 11.20 or so, I stood up and walked out. David Green continued interviewing people live at our old headquarters. I stood up and walked out and was driven across Washington, D.C. to this new building. I took a five-minute nap on a couch, and then at noon Eastern, I picked up the live coverage, and David Green came after me and rejoined. We said nothing about it on the air. I mean, there were too many important things going on. Nobody cared except us. But the idea was to keep that dance going and to keep the focus on the facts, even as you were dealing with ridiculous, like, construction demolition and everything else around you and actually changing studios in mid-broadcast with nobody knowing. That is an amazing story. Just to sum up, two top tips for going live. Ask straightforward questions. Don't feel like you need to sound smart. What you want to do is make things clear and concise enough so that the audience feels like they're smart. Because when they feel like you made them smart, they're going to think you're smart. Can you think of a task for our students? Sit with someone that you barely know, could be a classmate, and ask them questions until a story comes out. That is not something you'd really want to do live because you hopefully are more prepared and more focused and more concise, but I think it's a good exercise and it's something you ought to be doing live, which is like trying to figure out what the story is that that person has inside them. 
Thank you so much, Steve. You've got to run to a studio, <laughs> literally. I do, I do, to do something live. Masterclass is produced and edited by Buffy Gorilla and Ruby Schwartz. It's recorded in the Hallwood Recording Studio by Gavin Neighbour. The original concept is by Anders Furs. Our theme tune is by Susie Wilkins. And it's all brought to you by the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Thanks for listening.